The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Faculty Futures Lab. I'm DJ Hopkins. I'm a professor at San Diego State University. This episode of Faculty Futures Lab is part of the series, How to Professor, in which I talk to some of my colleagues about how they got good at the things they do. This episode is about writing. It's about why we write. It's also about collaboration. And long before we're done talking, we're going to be surfacing a conversation about social justice and the work that can be done in writing and with writing. I'm joined today by two people I really admire. First, Dr. Patrick Anderson is Professor of Communication and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, San Diego. He's currently writing a book on police violence based on his four years serving on San Diego's Commission on Police Practices. Dr. Anderson's also working on a book on queer suicide. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Happy to be here. Patrick and I are Zooming across country with Dr. Patricia Ibarra. Hi, Patty. Hello, good afternoon. Dr. Ibarra is professor in the Department of Theater Arts and Performance Studies at Brown University. She's currently working on a digital humanities project about late theater director Reza Abdo and his play, Father Was a Peculiar Man. She's also writing a monograph about Abdo and the development of queer theory. I'm so glad you could both join me today. Look, I want to start by talking about how you found your way to writing. I don't claim to know about your inner lives, but from my perspective, you two have always seemed to be deeply engaged with writing as a practice. And whenever I've read your work or seen you present at conferences, I've always thought, okay, that's a writer. I know, you have many identities, but also, you're writers, right? I hope so. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, DJ. So I want to ask, when did you realize, oh, I know, writing? Well, I am going to take a little journey to my inner life, I guess. <laughs> so I, I grew up, you know, queer. Um, I've been queer my whole life, I like to tell my students. And I grew up queer in an extremely hostile time and place, the 70s and 80s in Birmingham, Alabama, the Deep South. And early in life, I found writing to be a place where my inner life could breathe and expand and take up space without the threat of violence. As long as I allegorized, I would say now, whatever mm -hmm. it was I was writing about. And I was very lucky to have teachers who may or may not have known, you know, everything I just described, yeah. but who valued every genre of writing that I would engage in, whether it was angst-filled poetry or, you know, fantastic creations of beings who don't otherwise exist or imagined letters I was writing to someone. There were people in my educational life who valued everything I wrote. So for me, writing was not a comfort zone, but a mm -hmm. strategy for survival 
a strategy for escape and a way to dream. It was a way to imagine something other than, you know, the conditions in which I lived. Oh, damn, Patrick. That is, I've never heard you say that before. I've talked to you many <laughs> times. That is, that's like hard and beautiful. Thank you. Um, Patty, what about you? Yeah. yeah, I would I would say that that maybe writing played a, a somewhat similar role for me. So since we're getting personal, I grew up an only child, child of alcoholics, and had what I guess I would still refer to as my rich inner life. And I think like Patrick, it was um, writing became a way to think or imagine otherwise. I'm not mm -hmm. sure I have quite as much of his identity as a writer, although I will say that unlike some academics, I do not greatly avoid writing uh, most of the time in the sense that I find writing, if not comforting, I find it the place in which I, I feel the most myself at times. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. um, some of that is the, the stuff from, from being young, and kind of alienated growing up in Los Angeles, clearly not kind of, I think, embodying the sort of surfer girl femme ideals of some of what was around me, which was never that because I grew up in a high school that was 40% Latinx. So that was never really the reality, but it was somehow some mm -hmm. kind of iconographic reality that I was mm. facing. But also I think, you know, I spent six years as a department chair and so for me, those were years in which I wrote less. And certainly I don't think yeah. I could bring my whole self to being an administrator, but I could always bring my whole self and my thinking to my writing. So I didn't get as much writing done when I was being a department chair, but I will say that it was really valuable to write a little bit through that to remember why I did it. So that's, that's writing, maybe. <laughs> no, I, I'm one of those people for whom writing is a place where I struggle to bring my whole self. It's always challenging and I'm, I'm frequently facing my own resistance. So to hear the two of you talking about, in many ways, finding yourselves or inventing yourselves in writing, that's both beautiful and I have to say a little alien to me. That's, mm. that's not my experience. So, you know, everything I just said is um, about my own experience with writing is, is true. And as Patty was describing, every time I sit down to write, I, I get a little whisper of the younger me who, mm. who found himself and had space for himself in making sentences. At the same time, Within my academic writing in particular, the archives that I work with are often violent, are marked by dehumanization, by dispossession, by suffering, by death, mm. by loss, by mourning, and by approaching mortality, by really coming to terms with mm. finitude and the ends of ourselves and the ends of others. And so as a grown-up working within these institutions uh, and including the institutions of academic publishing, it's important for my current writing practice to make sure I'm balancing a relationship to writing that is about 
that older discovery, a space for imagination, a space for survival, um, an approach of myself with writing as a place where I can dwell with some profoundly haunting archives and give them space to live and breathe, which becomes a, a sort of a practice of justice in a world where justice is hard to find. I mean, also, Patrick, knowing what I know about your writing, there's the ratio. Like, I know that for the beautifully wrought two or three sentences, however difficult the subject matter that those sentences are talking about, I know there are often 80 to 100 hours of meetings mm. underneath those three sentences mm. from mm -hmm. which you're trying to think through often institutional violence or um, inability to recognize violence that you're seeing, right? Mm. Uh, I feel a little bit, at least in my current project, I'm, I'm confronting things that are violent and, and, and death too, but in a, in a slightly different, I mean, and, and maybe in this more aestheticized way because I'm, I'm working on one particular artist at this point, Reza Abdo, who due to the biomedical violence and neoliberalization in the United States was, was let die. He was, he was let yeah. to die because of Reagan and, and a, a bunch of other things. So in some ways, I find my work really difficult and it sometimes takes my breath away to confront the work. Although I often feel right now, like the work I'm doing goes back to my earlier self in maybe a slightly different way in the sense that I first thought I would be writing about Abdo's work very close upon his death in sort of the, the late 90s. He died in 1995. And I, I, I kind of put it away for 20 years and I'm coming back to it. And I think in that sense... It's a re-engagement with the difference. And I'm so glad I'm writing this work now and not when mm. I was 28. One of the things about Patty's writing that I aspire to and that I think teaches me something else about writing is the way that for Patty, you know, within academic writing, citationality, so the work of drawing together other texts, of considering other voices, mm -hmm. of looking at precedent work, and thinking alongside a lot of other people. Of all the writers I've ever known, Patty is the most collectivist writer I've ever encountered. And I'd mm -hmm. always had a sense of that reading her work, but working together with her on the essay we just finished and now the book that we're sort of building out of that experience, I realized that, that this is organic for Patty. It's a part of the writing process. So let me just describe what I mean. So Patty will be in the middle of considering some primary text, whether that's a script or a performance or some other material, and she will recall lots and lots of other people who have thought about adjacent questions or who have considered the same material or brought some pressure to bear upon a different historiological reading. And Patty will set, she will essentially decenter herself. Um, she will mm -hmm. set down her own writing and dive into the work of other people. And she will not go back to that writing until she has really lived and breathed this other work and really given it space to sort of lead her, guide her, teach her, draw her attention to or away from something else, even if she disagrees with it. And 
when I try to teach, you know, my graduate students or my undergraduate students how citation should never just be a process of ticking off the boxes that someone has mm -hmm. told you are the right boxes to tick off, I think of Patty's work because in in Patty's hands, footnotes, endnotes, you know, parentheticals, these become yeah. spaces for a collective. They become the formation of a community rather than an opportunity to perform mastery or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Building a bibliography is a creative practice. And, and to that, I would add, it, it's also a, a social practice. Like, these are the people I'm going to be in conversation with. And some of them I've met at conferences, and some of them have been dead for hundreds of years. But this, this is a kind of social network that I'm building through, as you said, citationality. Patty, do you want to respond to the praise that Patrick just lavished well, on you? Well, I mean, that's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me, Patrick. So <laughs> thank you. 100% <laughs> um, true. Yes, I, I really, I mean, I do take this seriously, although Patrick, I think you also take this incredibly seriously as a practice. I think part of the joy of writing together was actually bringing together a number of conversations that were maybe happening in some different places that should have been speaking to each other. It led us into some very odd conversations and email <laughs> exchanges with people you wouldn't anticipate um, and sent us reeling into watching early 90s cinema in the in the late of the night to catch references. You know, I'm not taking notes with every academic or intellectual conversation I'm having, but I do try to remember, I really try hard to remember who I'm having those conversations with. And not in a reactive defensive way, like, oh my gosh, what if I don't cite this person? They're going to be really upset. But more in that, what I deeply respect in the classroom, but particularly sometimes in the graduate classroom, is that mm -hmm. I am learning from my graduate students. And even though I'm oh, not yeah. directly citing something they said, there will be something that will come out of those conversations that I want to yeah. remember. So I just, I try also to cite my students and conversations with my students and, and rooms in which those conversations happened as part of the mm. process, because I think that's, that's really, really incredibly important. And I think probably because I do work with a lot of what we would call today BIPOC students, because I mentor also a lot of BIPOC and queer students, it just seems all the more important to make them part of the quote unquote record. Yes. So from this conversation about writing as a kind of social practice, I want to turn to collaborative writing, because the reason I have the two of you here at the same time is that I know you've recently written an article together and probably have more projects planned on the horizon. I've done some collaborative writing, too, and it's hard <laughs> and it tends to result in like dozens, hundreds, hundreds of emails is not hyperbole. And it's also sometimes for me, at least mortifying because I give a good friend my work and then receive notes on it and look at it and think, <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. That's, that's painfully accurate feedback. Thank you. Good friend. <laughs> How did you end up deciding that you needed to work together? Well, Patty and I have been friends for a long time. And about 10 years ago, we planned a major national conference together. Mm -hmm. And we learned during that experience that our friendship translated to working well together. And so, 
you know, with that sort of historical knowledge in mind, it was at another conference for the same organization that was held here in San Diego in November 2021. It was held in person, despite the fact that the pandemic was still raging and there were new waves. You know, this is a group of theater and performance people. And theater and performance have historically been spaces where queer folks with increased health and other vulnerabilities live. The theater and performance is also institutionally underfunded and marginalized. That takes mm-hmm. the form of there being higher proportions of contingent faculty in our field. Um, so people with institutional and social disparities that um, make them more vulnerable to pandemics and other political crises. And so the conference happened. We all agreed to certain conditions. And at the very first plenary on which Patty was speaking, another speaker, uh, a very distinguished senior scholar, removed their mask and did so in this weird moment that we describe in the essay, perhaps not intending what then happened, which is that those of us in the audience in that ballroom who lived with increased vulnerabilities were suddenly jarred out of a relative space of safety in which we thought we had all consented to the same rules. Patty and I were both shocked and immediately began talking about it afterwards and realized that there were some overlaps in some work I had been doing on HIV, the first wave of of that crisis, which corresponded with the founding of performance studies as a field. And Patty was doing work on Reza Abdo um, that she's been describing here. And we realized that in preparing a collaboratively written response to this moment, we had a lot of work in process to bring to the essay. I mean, I think that's exactly right. The other thing I would say is that all of us, including you, DJ, are of of a generation, right? And Mm -hmm. something that Patrick and I decided not to do incredibly consciously is a hot take. So I guess what I would say is we sound so rational now and calm and... But that that moment deeply, deeply disturbed me, in part because yeah. I was like on stage and oh, right. kind of traumatized and frozen. And, you know, let's be realistic. Like, I'm not the one who is at greatest risk, right? Mm-hmm. I am surrounded with people in my life who are at risk, but I'm less so at risk. I mean, if we remember when that conference was, it was right on the eve of children also being able to be vaccinated. So when I attended that conference, my child was not yet vaccinated, but that's all a little bit of personal history. Well, I just want to add, you know, whatever we might say about that person and that person's potential for causing infection from the stage, what it's really struck me as was a kind of performance of disrespect or a performative demonstration of a lack of concern. Yes. I don't want to dwell on that so much, but I will say, I guess my feeling, if I were to put it in the language of liberal democracy for a second, like you broke the contract. Mm -hmm. You broke the contract. The larger piece of it, right, was that I had an incredibly emotional response Mm -hmm. to the moment. And a different person, set of people, might Mm -hmm. have in fact decided to do the the rage hot take. Mm -hmm. I think being 
the people that we are, we shared our rage hot take privately. And we decided to think, okay, we're going to take the time to, to actually situate that mm-hmm. in terms of the history that we're writing about and about our work and come to the other uh-huh. side with something different. And it was incredibly important, I think, that we did that. We have yeah. a privilege in the room, right, that I think we're both incredibly aware of as people mm-hmm. who are tenured right, to be able to speak to these conditions. Mm -hmm. But we were very aware that there were a lot of the people in the room who would perhaps not feel comfortable Mm -hmm. speaking about it. Yeah, that's, that's why we did it. So I'm glad we took the time to do it. But that was the impetus. In the essay, we talk about what why why did this incident bother us so much. And the reason is that these moments of breaking protocol in COVID and in not recognizing a pandemic for what it is, and these mm-hmm. moments in which it seemed like we once again are in a country ignoring or not taking care of people yeah. in a pandemic, yeah. of course, it was our memory of our own different histories of being in the HIV AIDS pandemic from the early 80s to the present, but particularly, I would say, mid-80s to 1995, when the drugs changed. Given everything you've said over this conversation, it's not surprising to me that the two of you chose to process this response in writing. You didn't throw a brick. It wasn't a tweet storm, which is a kind of writing but different from a 10,000-word scholarly article. Yeah, and that's not to in any way sideline throwing bricks. I think because both of us were so immediately emotionally affected, I sat for some of the talk that followed that moment, and then I I Mm -hmm. realized I had to get up and leave. I Mm -hmm. I had to get out of the space. And then I realized that in doing that, I was outing myself in different ways. I was outing vulnerabilities. I was outing, you know, what my opinion was of this moment. And of course, that sort of moment is always performative, as our field likes to theorize, not in the colloquial sense of that word these days, but in the the old school sense that that moment actually positions you and makes you visible and creates a new reality around you. And, you know, DJ, the last talk I gave before the pandemic was at San Diego State, at your Mm -hmm. university. And a part of what I, um, you were there, you were a very (laughs) welcoming and kind host and friend there. But one of the things that I was doing in that talk was to really home in on the year 1983, when the HIV virus was first identified, but also it was it was the year that Ward 5B at San Francisco General Hospital was established as the first inpatient clinic for people living with HIV and AIDS. It was also the year that a really important essay in our field was published, and in being published, initiated a new sort of thread of performance theory. Mm-hmm. And the, the essay which Patty and I call or titled "Is This Ballroom a Bathhouse?" is really forcing the material political question of how gathering has changed, the risks of gathering, the promises of gathering, the potential of gathering, 
and also how all of those things have not changed between 1983 and now. By ballroom, you mean like an academic conference, like a hotel ballroom. Yeah, social Which is another kind of yeah. social network. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Knowing full well uh, what the differences between ballrooms and bathhouses are, I was going to mm-hmm. say, we also wanted to really stake a claim in the ways that queer and trans organizing so that social spaces can be protected so that even in face of the most mortal threats, queer and trans people can thrive in these spaces. You know, queer and trans folks set some things in motion in the 1980s when the rest of the world had abandoned us. And it was important to us to return to that moment with sober minds and think about what we still had to learn from it. Absolutely. And while I think the title to the essay is a tiny bit cheeky, we are absolutely (laughs) serious. Mm -hmm. We're absolutely serious. And, you know, as we're at this moment in which we're trying to find ways to make conference spaces safer and more accessible, especially considering the expense, both ecological Mm -hmm. and economic of getting to conferences, there's a world in which I think we will be, in some sense, we might be um, not emphasizing the in-person conference quite as much, right? Because of how resource dependent it is and letting all that be true at the same time, if and when we are gathering physically together in those spaces, which might happen less often, the privilege of being in those spaces together is predicated on taking care of people to the level of the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing that, then I think I think we have a problem. There is something about the serendipity, and I would say the promiscuity of sociality at conferences that doesn't quite Mm -hmm. happen or we haven't figured out how to make it happen quite the same way Mm -hmm. on zoom but to do that then we we have to abide by the contract right we have to abide by by the rules and what we know from this earlier period of activism right is that it's not demonizing promiscuity that's not going to get us anywhere we have to be careful with our practices Mm-hmm. Right. So right. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can do the kind of community self-preservation in the face of violence that we learn how to do in these spaces as well. But, you know, when I attend conferences, many tweets are about, I'm not able to attend the conference because I'm an adjunct, or I chose not to attend this conference because of my carbon footprint, or most recently, many posts about access and accessibility of the hotel we chose, of conference rooms. I think we have reached a point at which this form of social gathering to share our writing has to change, is what I was going to say, but is confronted by certain realities and is forcing us to think about care in a different way. That's exactly right, DJ. It comes down to collective care and to strategies and practices that are collectively developed and that we can organize under the umbrella term care. You know, the other major event that happened in 1983, incidentally, that Patty and I write about in this essay is 
really the invention of safer sex by queer and trans communities. In 1983, around that time, there were, you know, the first sort of brochures published by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence in New York and by a couple other groups that really carefully laid out exactly what might make very specific practices less risky, or that at least would allow one to consciously navigate potential harm. You know, so if we think about um, the, the invention of safe sex as the practices that were developed to negotiate the institutional abandonment of queer and trans communities in the 1980s, and to collectively produce a world where promiscuity, pleasure, coming together, as the subtitle of the essay calls it, uh, uh -huh. gathering. Not to put too you know. fine a point on it, but... Well... Some people need the point to be fine. Some people need the point mm -hmm. to be fine. But, you know, those are the practices that were developed and that were strategically shared, negotiated, refined, and so on within a hostile space so that as many people as possible could survive and even thrive to the extent that that was possible. When it comes to conferences now and the questions that both of you are raising about accessibility, footprint, expense, and many other concerns, academia hasn't developed its own version of safe sex for those practices. And again, safe sex is about managing risk. It's about curating access for as many people as possible without regard, you know, without limiting that access to people who can afford to buy a ticket and stay in a hotel. But it's also about, as Patty was saying, creating spaces for people just to hang out and be together. That yeah. form of social promiscuity. Academia has not yet invented safe sex to allow right. all of those things to happen so that we can simultaneously survive together and, where possible, thrive within these organizations and within our own work. Yeah. What you're saying forces me to rephrase something I said earlier. I said that academia and the academic conference needs to think about care differently. No, academia and the academic conference needs to think about care because it hasn't. That's never really been part of the equation. And we're Zooming right now and we're able to be intellectually promiscuous. It shouldn't be impossible to have the kind of sociality that stimulates people's imaginations professionally the reason so many people go to academic conferences, surely it should be possible to hybridize that in ways that take advantage of all the things we've learned during the pandemic so that we can have conversations like this, but also introduce everything that the two of you are talking about in terms of care and access. It shouldn't be hard. No, I, I think there are in good faith people who are trying to invent mm -hmm. it at the level of our conferences. I do think we have some really great inventive caring people who are who are trying to do that work and I, I do think ultimately they will figure that out in addition to finding a, a very different kind of economic model for professional associations which That's at this right. point right. really depend on the revenue of the conference to provide other services That's right. and other forms of support for our field for little to no cost for people who can't go so I don't so much, there, there's been a little finger pointing at professional associations as if they're not aware of the problem. I, I do think they're aware of the problem and they're trying to figure it out. My concern with this mode of care more is that there's a different kind of learning 
that needs to happen, I think. And I guess I would say this as there's so many names for it now. Fairy, as a fairy godmother, is a Marilindre, like as someone who was taken care of and like actually taken care of by largely queer men in terms of understanding a different and better kind of masculinity than the one that was modeled in my own home. I, I am in a symbiotic, interdependent, very loving community with the people who saved me. So if there's anything I can do from my position, right, as like a cis girl who can pass, right, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're in a community together. So I guess the, the care is to realize that it's for all of us, right, which is, which is maybe an inversion or not quite the same thing as Diamanda Galas saying, we are all HIV positive, but right. it is saying let's assume we are all HIV positive. And if we assume we are all immune compromised, how do we do this? And it's our responsibility to assume that in all of these situations and to make the world as if that was true. Mm -hmm. Patty, Patrick, thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Any opportunity to hang out with the two of you, I'll take. <laughs> <laughs>